The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. We're here this gathered this morning to participate in one of the most significant rituals in the church. There are two rituals that are mandated, that are instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ for believers in the church age because they, they are a picture representative, a visual aid of something that transpires in the the spiritual realm or an unseen realm. There's the Lord's table in baptism, and as I have uh, reflected on that concept a little bit, I realize that one of the implications of both of baptism, believer's baptism by immersion, and the Lord's table is to, it also demonstrates that they represent events that are distinct from one another. Now, what I mean by that is that the Lord's table that we are celebrating this morning is a picture of what transpired on the cross and is related to our salvation. Whereas baptism speaks of what happens positionally in our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection as the foundation for our spiritual life, according to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. That demonstrates that justification and sanctification, while both based on the work of Christ on the cross, are distinct operations in the life of the believer. Now, the reason that is important is that historically they were confused in the Roman Catholic theology that you are being justified, it's a process, sanctification is also a process, and they were seen as being uh, identical. The same error enters into what is called lordship salvation. And the problem is that when you identify salvation with sanctification too closely, you end up making the spiritual life somehow the basis or the necessary basis or the necessary indicator of genuine salvation. And that's a problem. And yet in the ordinances of the church, both baptism and the Lord's table, what we see is two distinct operations, two distinct uh, ordinances that are not built on one another. They indicate that there is, a, at least at that uh, through the symbolism of the two rituals that sanctification and the spiritual life. Are you playing with the volume up there? Because one second it goes up and the next second it goes down. And um, Jim, y'all playing with the volume one minute. I'm having to lower my voice. Next minute raise it to uh, modulate along with the fluctuations up there. Um, anyway, the Lord's table is designed to illustrate exactly what took place on the cross and what Jesus Christ did for our salvation. There are two elements in the Lord's table, the unleavened bread and the cup. The unleavened bread focuses on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his qualification to go to the cross as our Savior, as the Redeemer, the one who is tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. And the cup represents his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, 
where he paid the penalty for our sins. He paid the price for all of our sins so that the issue is no longer what we do, who we are, uh, our morality or immorality, sinfulness or lack of it, whatever it might be. The issue is no longer anything in our life. The issue is uh, Jesus Christ himself and our relationship to the cross through faith alone in Christ alone. And the reason that we are mandated by the Lord to observe the Lord's table on a regular basis, and the scriptures do not uh, dictate how often, there are some groups that have the Lord's table on almost a daily or weekly fashion, others that do it once a year or once every three or four months. But it is our custom to observe the Lord's table on the first Sunday of every month on a regular basis in order to focus our attention in order to give us this opportunity to be reminded that we are what we are, and the salvation we have is totally dependent upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. It is a time to reflect on all that grace has provided for us. And as such, we need to look at the Lord's table as an opportunity to sort of uh, pull us back into reality, reality being defined by what God says it is, and reality being defined that we are uh, nothing, that we are not worthy of anything, and salvation is not dependent upon who and what we are, that we're all in the same uh, boat of condemnation, and we all have salvation alike based on the free grace of God and His unmerited love. So as we come to the Lord's table, we also recognize that the Lord's table is not restricted by church membership. We do not believe in closed communion. Communion is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord's table will have no meaning for you, and it will be a ritual without reality. It is only for a person who has put their faith alone in Christ alone, and it has a symbolic value of representing the fact that you have put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus used the analogy of eating and drinking to to describe faith, that just as anyone, rich or poor, male or female, uh, no matter what their ethnic background might be, anyone can eat just as anyone can, can believe. But the object of faith is what has merit, and the object of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the Lord's table, we are signifying symbolically as we eat the bread and drink the cup that we have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, that we have put our faith alone in Christ alone. Now, because of the seriousness of this occasion, the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians, who were treating it lightly, that because they had treated it lightly and were not in fellowship when they came to the Lord's table, that there were many among them who were weak and sickly, and many died. Those were three stages of divine discipline, as we saw in our study of 1 John last week, that the congregation uh, had even seen believers die the sin unto death because of their irresponsible attitude towards the Lord's table. So the Apostle Paul said that we are to judge ourselves, examine ourselves, before we come to the Lord's table. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity in the privacy of your soul and the privacy of your priesthood 
to admit or acknowledge your sins to God, to make sure that you are in fellowship filled with the Spirit, ready to uh, concentrate and focus on the Lord's table. And then we open in prayer. So I'm going to uh, ask the two deacons to come forward. Let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer. And then I'm going to ask uh, Jim if he would please uh, return thanks for the bread. Let's pray. The night before he went to the cross, our Lord celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. As they came to the bread, he took the bread and broke it. It was unleavened bread, meaning that the leaven, which is symbolic in Scripture of sin, there was no leaven in the bread, so that pictured his body. And he took the bread and broke it. He said, this bread is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Ernie Dillon if he would please return thanks for the cup. Jesus then took the cup, the third cup in the Passover meal was called the cup of redemption. He said, this cup is my blood which is given for you, the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's all stand together and sing hymn number 258, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. 258. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, 
But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit would make this real to each one of us, that we would have the courage to face the application that he makes clear to us. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, for our president, for our national leaders, uh, both political, civil leaders, as well as our military leaders, that you would give them wisdom and skill during this time of war against terrorism, and that you would... Uh, Continue to provide for the protection and security of this nation. Father, we pray that today as we study your word that we would uh, be able to understand these things, that once again we would recognize and uh, come to understand more fully all that you have done for us and provided for us in our so great salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John 5:18 to 21. 1 John 5:18 to 21 and we begin our final section of 1 John. The final part, the concluding comments, summary statements of the apostle. We come to the conclusion of this epistle. And there are three things the Apostle wants the readers to remember, three things that he has discussed in the body of this epistle, three things that he is driving home in the conclusion with the phrase, we know. Notice in your Bibles, verse 18 begins, we know. Verse 19 begins, we know. Verse 20 begins, we know. There are three things that we know or should know as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a result of the study of this epistle, three things that John has emphasized that are realities for every single believer so that we can advance in the spiritual life. Now, before we get into these three things, we need to pull back a minute because this is going to review the key themes, key principles he's, he's talked about in this epistle. So we want to wrap up some ideas and see how all of these things relate to one another. First of all, we have to remember the distinction between positional truth and experiential truth. Positional truth has to do with what happens at the point of salvation when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. We describe this in terms of two categories, the eternal realities and the temporal realities. Eternal realities have to do with what happens positionally, legally, at the instant of salvation. But the fact that we are saved, that we have a new nature, that we are in the image of Christ, that we 
are a child of God is not always evidenced by our day-to-day experience. In fact, there are many believers who, because of their disobedience to the Word of God, because of their rebellion against God, they are disobedient children, and their lives are the same as as unbelievers. Many of these are under the sin unto death, which we discussed last Sunday in 1 John 5:16 and 17. So we have to maintain our understanding of these two categories, and that the eternal reality is described by the Apostle Paul with the phrase, "...in Christ." At the instant of salvation, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and this is called the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is that reality, according to Paul in first, uh, excuse me, in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, that is the foundation for, for the spiritual life. His argument in Romans 6 is basically this. If you realize that at salvation you were set free from the dominion of sin because you've been identified with the death, burial, burial and resurrection of Christ, that because of your identification with with his death you are set free from bondage to sin, now you can live the spiritual life. That doesn't mean now you will live the spiritual life. It doesn't mean you will automatically live the spiritual life. It means that you have the potential to live the spiritual life because the tyranny of the sin nature has been broken at salvation. You still have a sin nature. You'll still sin. But the tyranny that has been broken. Before you were saved, you only could live according to the sin nature. You didn't have any alternative. So this describes the second arena that we are concerned with, the temporal reality of our spiritual life. Jesus referred to this as with the term abiding. We are abiding in him, John 15, abiding in him as the vine. John has picked up that word abide in 1 John to describe the ongoing relationship of the believer who is uh, walking by means of the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, and applying the word on a day-to-day basis. When we are abiding in him, we are manifesting his character. Now, that doesn't mean that when you're a brand-new baby believer, you're going to be manifesting his character as fully as you are when you're mature. There is a growth process. But when you are abiding in him, that is where uh, growth takes place. John, I mean, excuse me, Paul calls it walking by the Holy Spirit, and it is the mechanic of being filled by the Spirit, uh, uh, Ephesians 5.18. What happens, though, is we often sin. What we have seen here is at the instant of salvation, we are identified with Christ. And at the instant of salvation, we are also filled by the Holy Spirit. We're also abiding in Him. So that at that instant of salvation, we are inside of both of these circles. But it doesn't take long before we are outside of the right circle. It is not long before we are we, we commit some sin and we stop abiding, we stop walking by the Spirit, and the result of that is that we sin. We have to stop walking and become ejected from that right circle before we sin. We make a decision to stop walking by the Spirit, and at that instant we are outside of that circle, which is a white circle symbolizing the fact that John also refers to it as walking in the light. We are outside of that circle in darkness, under the control of the sin nature. 
The only way to recover is to use 1 John 1, 9 to confess our sins. And when we do, we are back inside the right circle, walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, and being filled uh, by the Spirit. Now, we all know that in the process of spiritual growth as baby believers, we often go through this sort of yo-yo effect where we're in one minute and out the next, in one minute, out the next, and that's just characteristic of a young believer because they don't know enough doctrine yet to, to change the way they think, change the way they operate, and they spend the vast majority of their time probably walking in darkness and under the control of the sin nature, then being filled by the Spirit. But gradually, as time progresses, as you spend time learning the Word, studying the Word, and applying the Word under the filling of the Holy Spirit, then less and less time is logged in darkness and more and more time in by walking in the light. Now, to stay in the light, to keep walking by the Spirit, the Scriptures give us various principles or various mechanics, various skills that we use, and I refer to these as spiritual skills. We also call them the stress busters. These skills keep us inside that right circle. As long as we handle the adversity, the problems, the difficulties, the decisions in life, by one or more of these spiritual skills, then we stay inside that right circle and we are not ejected into darkness where we are under the control of the sin nature. Now, in this chart, we have what is familiar to many of you, the ten stress busters or the ten spiritual skills as they relate to the three stages of spiritual growth, spiritual childhood, spiritual adolescence, and spiritual adults. These terms are terms that we have seen in 1 John chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 12 down through about verse 22. John has given instruction to the different maturity levels in the spiritual life. He addresses them as little children. He addresses them as uh Spirit, those who are in spiritual adolescence as young men, and he addresses them as fathers, that is, uh, spirit, those who are spiritual adults. John, uh, Paul refers to them in Romans 8.14 as huioi, or adult sons. So certain spiritual skills relate to different stages in the spiritual life. You have to master certain skills, certain basic skills, before you can go on to the next level. That's true in every area of life, whether you're talking about sports or dancing or computer skills or whatever it is. There are certain things you master and you practice them over and over and over and over again. And after you've done them a thousand times or two thousand times, then you still have to do them another thousand or two thousand times to master them. Once they become part of your makeup, then you don't think about them consciously quite so much. You just automatically begin to do them. And that's when something becomes a skill. When you can do it without having to think about every, every step, every, uh, increment or every part of it. So in spiritual childhood, we master, first of all, confession. We have to recover from our sin. When we recover from our sin, we're filled by the Spirit, but we are commanded also to walk by the Spirit. That's the active verb. It's a present active imperative. We are to walk by means of the Spirit. That's the, that's the sense of the problem-solving device there. 
Then third, there's the faith rest drill, where we are mixing our faith with the promises of God. We are trusting God. We're claiming promises. We're applying principles. Then there is the fourth skill of grace orientation, where we are taking the principle of grace, that there is nothing that I have done on my own, nothing I have accomplished on my own. Everything I have comes as a free gift from God, just as salvation is free. It is not earned or deserved. Uh, it was given to me not on the basis of who I am or what I've done. So I must grow by that principle. I have to understand grace and begin to uh, relate that to every area of my life. Second Peter 3.18 says we are to grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge brings in the fifth basic spiritual skill of doctrinal orientation where we orient our thinking to the Word of God, Romans 12.2. We are renewing our thinking and we are not being conformed to the thinking of the world. This is a major idea that we've studied in John. We are not, when we are applying the Word, we are not of the devil or of the world. We are of God. We'll see that in verse 19. But when we sin, we are living according to the cosmic system. We are living like we're a child of the devil, and so the word is used there, of the world or of the devil. The way to uh, recover from that is first confession and then application of doctrine. Just as in our normal growth, we reach a stage of adolescence where often we think we know more than we do, and you see that with a lot of believers. They think they finally arrived because They've, basic, they've, they've mastered the basics. But just like uh, adolescents in life, they don't know nearly as much as they think they do. And it is not until they get to a point where they are making decisions based on the extended future that uh, you start seeing some level of maturity. Maturity is related to the ability to postpone gratification. So we reach spiritual adolescence when we begin to live our life today and make decisions on the basis of our eternal destiny. This is also emphasized by John, 1 John 2.28, where he says, Now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We start making decisions today so that we will not be ashamed at His coming. It doesn't have to do with loss of salvation, but loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Then as we move beyond spiritual adolescence, we get into what I call the love triplex, personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And this is a major theme for John in chapters 3 and chapters 4 of this epistle where he spends a lot of time relating the concept of abiding in him with love for the brethren, which is based love for other believers, impersonal love for other believers, which is based ultimately on our love for God. Because we uh, love God, we keep his commandments. The key commandment, the new commandment for the church age is to love one another as Christ loved the church. John has, and we've studied this in detail, John relates abiding in him with having love for God matured and perfected. Some verses on that are John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 12 down through 21 brings that together. 
the love for God, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 5, the love for God becomes a motivator and becomes the motivation for our impersonal love for all mankind. That, in turn, focuses us on the person of Jesus Christ, and that is emphasized in 1 John 3, uh, 3.16, that by this we know love, that he laid down his life as a substitute for us. The ultimate consequence of all of this is that we uh, have an, the share, we share the happiness of Christ. We have that inner tranquility, contentment, and stability that he had that is not dependent on circumstances or events or people, but is dependent on our relationship with Jesus Christ and our orientation to the plan of God for our lives. The result is that we produce much fruit according to John chapter 15. So that summarizes the spiritual life, and we looked at it a different way, that to stay in that bottom circle, excuse me, to stay in the right circle, going back to the old diagram there, uh, to stay in that right circle, to stay in fellowship, to walk by the Spirit, to continue to trust Him, we have this circle, that it, the boundary of which is really defined by these ten spiritual skills. And whenever we're faced with a decision, whenever we're faced with a problem, whenever you're faced with an adversity or handling prosperity, you have a choice. You can either handle it according to human viewpoint and according to your own resources, walking by the sin nature, or you can handle it by walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and walking in the light. That's the choice. It all depends on volition. And when we have positive volition and we handle that situation by one of these uh, spiritual skills, then we stay in the light, we abide in Him, and we stay and remain in fellowship, a position where the Holy Spirit is producing maturity. But what happens is that as soon as we, as soon as we disobey Him, we are ejected from that circle and we're out in darkness walking according to the sin nature. When we're in the circle, we're protected by the soul fortress. But as soon as we disobey him, we are ejected from that soul fortress, and we're outside in darkness, and we're outside in a position where we are vulnerable to the assaults of the world system and the assaults of the devil. Now, that's the foundation. That's All that ties together the things that we have studied in this epistle. Now, John is going to remind us of these things and tie things together through these three we-know statements in 1 John 5, uh, 18 through 21. Three things he emphasizes. First, that we know that the believer is eternally secure and cannot be harmed or touched by Satan, verse 18. The second thing is that we know that we manifest our new birth as believers and that we do not have to operate on Satan's system of human viewpoint thinking called the cosmos or called worldly thinking, worldliness, throughout the Scriptures, and that's verse 19. And then third... This is ultimately based on the fact that we know who Jesus Christ is. We understand that the hypostatic union is crucial for understanding the precedent set by him during the incarnation, during the dispensation of the Messiah. And it is an understanding of the hypostatic union that Jesus in his 
in his humanity did not rely on his deity to solve the problems he faced. He was tempted or tested in every area as we are. Now, it may not be exactly the area that you're tested in, but it is in every category so that if you're handling rejection, if you're handling uh, financial difficulty, if you're handling uh, the loss of a loved one, if you're handling uh, any kind of uh, uh, personal problem, or our testing, Jesus Christ went through that. He went through that category, and he applied doctrine in that category. Jesus, we, we don't normally think of things like this, but Jesus Christ, being a male, went through puberty, and as such, he had to handle all of the pressures related physically to sexual temptation, and he did that without giving in to any kind of sin and handling it under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit and the resources of Bible doctrine. He went through every category of testing just as we do, and he handles it through doctrine under the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit as a pioneer of the spiritual life. And that is emphasized in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 to the end of the chapter. So it is the hypostatic union that is crucial as far as John is concerned for understanding the precedence that Jesus Christ, the precedent that Jesus Christ set at the first advent. That is why this heresy that he is dealing with, that apparently has come into the church in the area of Ephesus, that Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth really wasn't the Messiah, or he wasn't fully God, that it was just the appearance of God, that somehow that, that this has had its influence, and he is countering that through everything that he is demonstrating in this epistle. So let's look at verse 18, the first thing that we know. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, if you look at this thing structurally in the Greek, there are actually two statements. They are combined through a coordinating conjunction, chi, but they are two distinct statements. We know that. The phrase we know is followed in the Greek by a hati clause, which indicates the content of the knowledge. It explains the principle. In English, we might write this, we know colon, point one. Whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. That's one thing, one principle in the Greek, and you combine it. See, Greek doesn't have uh, semicolons like you see in the verse on the overhead, doesn't have commas, doesn't have periods, and the way they wrote Greek, they just ran all the letters together, all the words together. When you got to the end of the line, uh, they didn't have, uh, they didn't think in terms of syllables and hyphens. Wherever the the line ended, they just started the next letter on the next line. So sometimes it's extremely uh, awkward trying to figure out what that word is because you might get, if you had a ten-letter word, you might get nine letters on one line and one on the next line. So. Uh, uh, you don't have any kind of uh, 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 grammatical symbols like we have. It was all done through syntax. It's all done through grammar, and that is why it's important to understand the grammar. And what we have in our construction here is, let me chart this up on the 
uh, overhead a little bit. We have a statement, we know. The hati indicates the content of knowledge, so we're going to have a couple of principles. Now, if we outline this thing, it says, we know, first of all, everyone who is born from God does not sin, but. So the Allah there, that is the uh, contrasting conjunction, A-L-L-A, is contrasting two things. So we're going to have A versus uh, non-A, or the or the contrast. So that sets up the fact that whoever is born of God does not sin is one side of it, but he who has been born of God keeps himself. That's the other side of it. So here you have two statements that are re- that relate to and explain one another. Then you have another conjunction, and this is the Greek kai, K-A-I which uh, normally means and. It has some other meanings, but it is usually used to join two independent clauses or two independent thoughts. So we have one thought expressed in the first two clauses, and then we have a second thought expressed in the final clause, and the wicked one does not touch him. This tells us that this second clause that translated in English, the wicked one does not touch him, is not related to the first clause. He is making two statements about what we know. We know, first of all, that the person who is born of God doesn't sin, but he keeps himself. Second, we know that the wicked one doesn't touch him. Now, that's our basic structure. Well, now that we understand the basic structure, we have to understand what in the world does he mean that we know that whoever is born of God doesn't sin because actually we all know a lot of believers, including the fact that we think that we're saved and we still sin. So what in the world could John be, be have in mind when he says that we know that whoever is born of God doesn't sin? This is a passage that, of course, uh, confuses a lot of people, so we have to break it down point by point. First of all, we have the phrase, we know, that is used in each of these three verses, and it is the perfect active indicative of the Greek verb for knowledge, oida. Oida, and oida is different from the Greek noun gnosko. You have two words in Greek for knowledge. Verbs for knowing. You have oida, O-I-D-A, and you have gnosko. Now, gnosko, G-I-N-O-S-K-O. Gnosko in- emphasizes perceived knowledge. Oida emphasizes more of an intuitive knowledge. Or you could say that when when a, a writer's using gnosko, he might be emphasizing more the perception of the knowledge, whereas oida indicates reliance upon something that it's now intuitive, it's already it's already perceived and now it is part of the knowledge bank in the soul. See what you have here is synonyms and synonyms are words 
that are extremely close in their meaning so that they overlap one another like two overlapping lamping, uh, uh, circles. And in some areas they have extremely close shared meaning where there is almost no discernible difference between the two words. But they're not completely identical because if they were, you wouldn't need both of them. There are shades or nuances of these words that are used by the Holy Spirit in order to bring out certain subtle differences or distinctions between the terms so that oida in some cases can be virtually indistinguishable from gnosko but in other cases it, it the holy spirit is bringing out a point and here he's indicating john is using oida because this is knowledge that has already been perceived we know this he uses it's a perfect tense emphasizing a completed action the perfect tense of a of a verb always emphasizes the completion of an action. It's something that is completed in past time, and the emphasis is either on the on the uh, fact of the completedness of the action, or it's on the present results of that past action. And here the emphasis is on the present results of that past action. He's emphasizing to these believers, you have gone through a process. You've been studying the Word. You've been listening to the Word. You have been studying the Word under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we've studied this dynamic under what I call the grace learning spiral. That in our soul we have an area of thought. And the Bible describes this as having two components. And I use a chart of... of uh, sort of two concentric circles. You have the noose, and at the core of the noose is what the Bible calls the heart or the cardia. This is the place of the seat of our most deeply held convictions. The pastor teacher comes along and he teaches the word, and under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the Word of God becomes understandable. The unbeliever can't understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Only when we have a human spirit can we understand the things of God. And then Jesus Christ said He sent the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who would make these things known to us. So He makes it understandable. Now, this is where people get confused. The Holy Spirit doesn't understand it for you. He makes it understandable. That's like when you were a kid, your mama would take the food and she would make it when you were a little baby. She would put it in that food grinder or some of those awful things I've seen mothers use where they make baby food and they just grind it all up into a mush and they make it chewable or so that the baby can swallow that food. But the mother doesn't swallow it for the baby. You know, you have to swallow your own food. The Holy Spirit is just going to make it understandable. If you're spiritually, uh, if you're a spiritual infant, there are many things that you may hear me say that just go right over your head. But after you hear it about 50 or 60 times, it's going to start making a little sense to you. That's normal growth process. You didn't have an appreciation for certain kinds of food when you were three and four years of age and uh, that you really appreciate now that you're uh, older and your taste buds have matured and your palate has matured. Same thing is true in the spiritual life. There are things you don't quite catch 
as a spiritual infant. But there are some things that, that are clear, and the Holy Spirit makes those understandable to you. And you have to make a decision whether or not you believe believe that as the Word of God. If you believe it, and see, to believe it, you have to understand it. You can't believe something you don't understand. Now, there, I know there are dimensions of understanding. You may not understand it in all of its uh, ramifications. You may not understand every aspect of it. But you understand the core of it. And as you study and grow in the process of spiritual maturity, more and more of those things will become understood by you, and at, wh- at which time you go through this same um, uh, metabolism process. Now, when it's understandable to you, that means you have to think about it and you have to believe it. You can't believe something you don't understand. And you can't pass a test on something that you didn't really understand. Because God's tests are different from those algebra tests or biology tests you took in school when you really didn't understand what you were writing. But that's what the teacher told you. That's what the textbook said. You memorized it and you regurgitated on the test and you passed the test. But the spiritual life isn't like that. You don't just simply regurgitate what the pastor said. You have, it's got to be part of your soul and part of your own spiritual life. So you have to understand it. You have to think about it. You have to, you have to, uh, you, you have to masticate it in your soul. That means you chew it up. It's the idea in the Old Testament of, of, of meditation, which picks up in some places the imagery of a cow chewing the cud. And that cow chews a cut over and over and over again to squeeze out every little bit of, of nutrition, and that's what believers do. You come, you listen to tapes, you take notes, you go home, you think about it, you listen to the tape again and again, and if these things become clear to you, you believe it, and then it becomes academic knowledge in the soul, gnosis. Now, once it is academic knowledge in the soul and gnosis, you have to use that volition again to believe it. You know, first you have to understand it, then you make a decision to, uh, to, to study it, to learn it, to come to understand it. That's when it becomes gnosis. Then you make a decision to believe it. I think I misspoke and put that too early a minute ago. You make a decision to believe it once it becomes gnosis. Once you've understood it, you make a decision to believe it, and then the Holy Spirit transfers it into the cardia, that innermost part of your thinking, where it becomes epinosis doctrine, and that is usable spiritual knowledge. Now you can use it. It doesn't, once again, it's not going to be automatic application. Just because you're filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you're automatically going to put it into application. The Holy Spirit is going to use this storehouse of knowledge, bring it to your memory at times of testing, adversity, so that then you have the opportunity to use it or not. So once again, volition plays a third role in application. And when you apply it, that's when spiritual growth begins to take place. So John is emphasizing the the uh, intuitive nature of this knowledge. You, these, the, the, his recipients have gone through this process. They have sat and listened to him. They have read the epistle. They have understood what he has taught. They have believed it. It is epinosis doctrine in the soul. So it is stored knowledge. And he says, we know it now. It is the result of the past action of the grace learning spiral. It is knowledge stored in the soul. And now you have to apply it. So the emphasis here is on the application of the stored knowledge in the soul. 
Now, this concept of knowledge is a key word in 1 John, and I want to review some of the things that John has emphasized about what we know. For example, in 1 John 2.20, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Now, the all things there, as we study, doesn't mean you, just because you are anointed by the Holy Spirit, that you automatically, instantaneously know everything in the Scriptures. The context indicates the all things relates to you understand Christology. You have been taught about the person of Jesus Christ. You've been taught about his deity, and you've been taught about his humanity, and you understand that. Anointing from the Holy One is not in that context talking about the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it is John's terminology for the operation of the Holy Spirit in helping us to understand the Word of God, what Paul calls the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because it's just clear from this verse that there is a connection between the anointing and knowledge. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit isn't related to knowledge. It is related to making our bodies a temple to the Holy Spirit. Anointing is related to knowledge in this passage, so therefore the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is... Related between, if you study Ephesians 5.18, compare it with Colossians 3.16, we see that the filling of the Holy Spirit is related to letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. So John says you have an anointing from the Holy, from the Holy One, and because of the operation of the Holy Spirit in the learning process, the filling of the Spirit, you know all things, that is, all things related to who Jesus Christ is in hypostatic union. Verse 21, he says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, Oida, and that no lie is of the truth. So you have learned this in the past with the result that this is knowledge of doctrine that's been stored in your soul related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the interesting thing is that that this understanding of Jesus Christ as undiminished deity and true humanity uh, continued to be a problem for early Christianity for the next 400 years. Part of the reason was that they had a very, for lack of a better word, sort of a naive or primitive understanding of the person of Christ. We have a much more technical understanding of the person of Christ because in the course of the early church history, we develop the terminology to understand what the Scripture says. That's the process of doing theology. It just The great analogy is, the, is in the Garden of Eden. God places Adam in the garden and says, start classifying and naming the animals. So Adam starts looking and says, well, there are certain animals that, are, that have four legs. There's others that... Um, that, that swim in the water. There's others that uh, fly. So he immediately begins to classify and separate animals according to uh, their environment and according to how they um, move around. And then he began to do more identification and, and more classification of animals. And then as he isolated individual groups and kinds, he then named them and identified them. Well, the same thing is true about the role of the believer in the church age. We've been given all this information in Scripture, all this data in Scripture. And the job in the church age is to take the data in Scripture and through the process of observation and classification and categorization, we break these things down and come to understand them in more technical ways. For example, the Scripture teaches that there is God the Father, 
who is full deity. That there is another person identified as the Son who also is full deity, manifests all the characters, all the qualities, all the attributes of God. And then there is a third individual referred to as the Holy Spirit who also has all the attributes, characteristics of deity. The Bible also teaches that there is only one God. Now, the early church has to figure this out, because one of the first things that happened at the beginning of the second century is critics of Christianity would come along and say, okay, you talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but you also say there's one God. You're a little confused, aren't you? Well, it took a while because, like like Christians today, people want to think sort of naively and simply about the Bible. And in the early church, rather than, than categorizing and classifying, being specific, they just talked in terms of quoting the Scripture. They just talked about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't until the, the heretics and, and enemies of Christianity came along and said, you guys are just, uh, you, you have this tremendous... Um, illogic in your system. You one hand you talk about it believing in one God, and then you got three gods. Which is it? And it wasn't until the end of the second century that you had a man by the name of Tertullian come along, and he said, and he used the coined a new word that wasn't in the Bible called Trinitas. And in the Latin word Trinitas, he is emphasizing the idea that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, yet they each partake of one identical essence. And so, once you had the word Trinity, then we had a category and, and nomenclature on which to hang this concept that God exists as three persons and one essence. And see, most of us think we understand the Trinity, or we understand it to a certain degree, and we sort of take that for granted. But if you were a Christian who lived at 125 A.D., you didn't have the terminology Trinity, so you had a somewhat fuzzy concept of, of, of this, this, this doctrine because you didn't have the verbiage for it. Well, the same thing was true. Because that was the first major battle they had in the early church. The same thing was true about the person of Christ. While everybody clearly believed that Jesus was God and that Jesus was a man, it wasn't until the heretics and the wackos and the weirdos came along and started teaching something a little bit strange that they had to sit down and further refine what this meant. What do we mean when we say Jesus is God? Is he God totally equal to the Father, where Son equals the Father in terms of deity? Or was there a time when Jesus uh, began existence? And actually what happened is you had a guy by the name of Arius come along, and Arius said there was a time when Christ was not. So you have the Father who's eternal. And then sometime in eternity past at point X, the Son came into existence, and then sometime later the angels and then the universe and creation. But Arius' theme song was there was a time when the Son was not, so he is deity, but only in a derivative or secondary sense. Now, if you think that, well, that's just nice history, Pastor, but, you know, that doesn't make much sense to me, well, just go down the street about two blocks to the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witness, and you're going to find the modern-day version of the Arians. 
because they're still with us. So this is important stuff to understand because there's nothing new under the sun, as the Scripture says, and these things continue. Also, because the solution to the Aryan problem was defined in 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea was a was a sort of a resort area on the on the Black Sea where they, uh, Constantine, the emperor, called a meeting because all the Christians in the empire were having this big battle over trying to understand who Jesus Christ was. And this was the first what's called an ecumenical council. reason it's ecumenical and not in a bad sense, because at that time in church history, there's only the church. You don't have a Roman Catholic church. You don't have a Protestant church. You don't have an Eastern Orthodox church. You don't have Baptists. You don't have Methodists. You don't have Episcopals. You just have Christians. You don't start seeing any kind of division take place for another uh, seven or 800 years. You just have Christians. So everybody got together. Everybody sent their representatives from all over the empire, and they hashed out uh, their understanding of what... Um, of the person of Jesus Christ, and that was at the Council of Nicaea, and the problem there was Arianism, and Arianism was defeated. But as you'll discover in life, like in most controversial issues, whether they're political issues or whether they're theological issues, only 5% of the people even have a clue as to what's really going on. And that was true with all of the bishops that ended up at Nicaea, and there were over 300 and only about 5% even had a clue what they were talking about. All that theological terminology and just sounded like a bunch of nitpicking and hair-splitting to 95% of them. And so they weren't going to be swayed by thought or by uh, logic. They were just swayed by their emotions. And finally, enough of them were swayed to go with Athanasius, who was the defender of orthodoxy and uh, was the one who accurately understood the uh, person of Jesus Christ is an eternal second person of the Trinity and fully God. Well, what happened after that was that uh, the, for the next 70 years, the battle continued. It took on political dimensions because the emperor of the uh, Roman Empire got involved. And one time you had one who was favorable to the Arians. Then he would be replaced by someone uh, when, when he died, his Air would uh, be sympathetic to the Orthodox crowd, and, and it went back and forth, and it wasn't until the second ecumenical council called the Council of Constantinople. And at the Council of God, Constant, we spell it, Constantinople, in 381, that the Athanasian crowd finally gained victory. He died a few years before this, but finally the Orthodox crowd understood the issue. See, it took uh, about uh, 50 years, a little over 50 years of going back and forth for that middle-of-the-road crowd, the 95%, to understand that the hypostatic union was really important and what the implications were. See, today you, you, most Christians don't even, have never even heard the term hypostatic union in their churches because their pastors are afraid to teach anybody anything. But it took those 60 years before people finally figured it out. And many of these theologians finally uh, expelled the uh, Aryan crowd, and they came up with a, a, a creedal statement at the Council of Constantinople, 
which was basically a restatement of the Nicene Creed, except it also added something, and that was a clear statement on the full deity of the Holy Spirit. And the key figure there who was the uh, carried the standard for orthodoxy was a man named Gregory Nazianzus. Now, that didn't end this understanding, this battle over who and what Jesus Christ was. See, that's the battle. That's the same issue John's dealing with his first John. I don't want you to lose why we're doing this. This is the battle John was starting to deal with in first John in the early church. And so the battle continued because once you decide, um, the question on the deity of Christ, is he fully God or is it derivative deity? Once you decide that, now you've got a new problem. You've got a man, Jesus, who is fully God on the one hand, and he's fully man on the other hand. Well, how, did that, how does that relate to each other? In what sense can you say he's fully God and fully man? It's, and one, one guy came up with the idea that says, well, you know, he had the body and the spirit of a man, a human spirit, but he has, a, but his soul is from God. Or he had, the, excuse me, he had the body and the soul of a man, but a spirit from God. Well, see, if he's got a bo- human body and human soul, but a spirit from God, he's not fully man. He's not really fully God. Oh, now we got a problem. So another guy came along and said, well, well, it's, it's a, it's, it's a blend. And he so blended the two, the deity and the humanity, that he's no longer fully God, he's no longer fully man, he's something else. It's, it's all mixed. And then you had a third guy that came along and he said, no, he's fully God and he's fully man, they're not mixed at all, but the way he articulated it was that they were so separate, it's almost like you have a Jesus with a split personality. At one minute he's he's God, and the next minute he's acting like man. But there there there's no union there. And and see the point is there is a what's our terminology a hypostatic union. He is one person, and so they battled for several more years to figure this out. And the next or the third major council was the Council of Ephesus, which was held in in uh, in. 431 A.D. At Ephesus, in 431 A.D., they had to deal with uh, uh, the problem of the relationship of these two natures, the deity and the humanity of Christ. And uh, one of the problems was a guy by the name of Nestorius. And Nestorius just had two so so uh, disparate natures that they weren't really one person. But they were beginning to work these things out, and, and a man by the name of Cyril of Alexandria, who was the pastor in, in uh, northern Egypt, um, pointed out that if Nestorius were right, now this is an important theological issue that was resolved in the early church, if Nestorius was right that these are so distinct, there's no union there, then a sinner would be redeemed by the sufferings of a mere man, and a mere man could accomplish redemption. See, they understood that the Redeemer had to not only be true humanity, he had to be deity so that what he did had infinite value for the entire human race. So he makes the point that if Nestorius were right, then a sinner would be redeemed by the sufferings of a mere man, and a mere man could accomplish redemption. And though a man, his argument was that though a man might pay a penalty for himself or a limited number of others, it took the linkage of the divine with the human to make the penalty effective 
for an infinite number of human beings. That's the third council. And then the fourth council that, that finalized the, this debate over the deity of Christ and the relationship of the humanity and deity was at the Council of Chalcedon. The Council of Chalcedon, which took place in four, I believe it was in um, 481, 451, can't read my own writing, 451 A.D. 451 A.D., and at the Council of Chalcedon, they defined the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. And this is their statement on the overhead. Following the Holy Fathers, we confess, and by that they mean the apostles, we confess, that is, we admit, we acknowledge with one voice, that the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is, here's a key statement, perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood. That means he has complete deity and complete humanity. He is truly God and truly man. That means he is, in his deity, he has everything God has. He's lacking nothing. And in his humanity, he has everything man has and is lacking nothing. So these two phrases together clearly define that Jesus has undiminished deity and true humanity. That he is of one substance with the Father as God, and he is also of one substance with us as man. Now the word translated Substance is the Greek word hypostasis. That's where we get the term. The hypostatic union. He has one hypostasis with the Father, one hypostasis with man. He is like us in all things without sin. This one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, is made known in two natures which exist. It's reality. It's not just some abstract theological concept. Two real natures without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. They're not without confusion means without mixture, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures is in no way taken away by their union, but rather the distinctive properties of each nature are preserved, and they don't transfer from one to the other. And that was finalized. Now, you want to know how this all ties together? That was finalized on November 1st, 451. See, we just had the anniversary. So I thought all of that fit nicely together with our date today. So we celebrate the anniversary of the Council of Chalcedon, which is the, the, the final clear orthodox doctrinal statement on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It took... 400 years, almost 400 years after John writes 1 John to get this clearly defined statement on who and what Jesus Christ is because they finally began to understand some of the things that he was saying in this epistle that if you don't have a full a, a, a Messiah who is undiminished deity in true humanity, it not only affects salvation, it destroys the basis for the Christian life in the church age. So John starts off all through this epistle, he has been emphasizing what we know about Jesus Christ, what we know about his humanity and his deity. And he goes on to say some other things about what we know 
In 1 John 2.29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, once again it comes back to the fact that Jesus Christ is perfect righteousness, you know that everyone who practices, uh, literally who does righteousness, is born of him. And there again, we have to remember that he is making the statement that the person who is born of God does Righteousness. The person who is born of God does righteousness. Now, this is fundamental to understanding 1 John 2.29, as we studied it earlier, as well as the statement in verse 18 of chapter 5, that, that whoever is born of God doesn't sin. It goes back to the same concept that John articulates, or excuse me, that Paul articulates in Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10 that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. See, at salvation, you're a new creature, positionally. But you're not living it experientially. The command in Ephesians 4.25 is to put on this new man experientially. The reality is it was created when you were regenerated in true righteousness or holiness. So you have a new nature that is holy and righteous. And when you are operating in fellowship, that new nature is manifesting itself and that new nature can't sin. It's only when you decide to stop walking, stop abiding, stop being filled with the Spirit, you make that decision, then you're ejected from the right circle, you're ejected from the light into the darkness, and you start operating according to your sin nature. But you have to use confession, get back in fellowship, that's putting on the new man. Uh, Paul makes a similar statement, Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new man who is renewed by means of knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So we have this new nature that can't sin. That's why he says the person who's born of God, that's your new nature, can't sin. When you're operating as a child of God, abiding in fellowship, abiding in Christ, walking by the Holy Spirit, you can't sin. You choose to stop walking, you're out of fellowship. That's what Paul said in Galatians 5.16. Walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So he's reminding them the phrase, you know, takes us back to you know who Christ is. You know that as a child of God, you partake in his nature, and when you are living according to that nature, you don't sin and you do righteousness. First John 3, 2, he states again, Beloved, now we are children of God, and yet it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know something. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So when we read the we know at the end of First John, it also is a reminder of these other passages that ultimately we're going to see him as he is. There's going to be accountability of the judgment seat of Christ. And it reminds us of the warning in 1 John 2.28 not to be ashamed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, 1 John 3.5, we know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. When we are abiding in him, as we've seen that phraseology in him, Often in John, he doesn't use the verb abide, but that's what he's talking about. It's not positional truth in Christ. It is abiding in him. When we're abiding in him, there is no sin. 
1 John 3:14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, you can be a believer walking in death, hating your brother, and you're abiding in death. You're walking in darkness out of fellowship. What else do we know? First John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That is, you believe that he is fully full deity and true humanity. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name. That is, the character of Jesus Christ who is undiminished deity and true humanity. And then that's when you experience the fullness or the abundant life. Further, 1 John 5.15, we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the petitions that we ask of him. And then we come to our passage in 1 John 5.18-20. through 20. All of this we know. We have confidence in this knowledge that we have learned as we've gone through 1 John. So we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, to get to that point, after discussing we know, we'll have to wait till next time to understand what it means that we don't sin, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of our great salvation, all that you have done for us, and our, and our perfect Savior, a perfect Savior who is undiminished deity and true humanity and who accomplished on the cross everything necessary for our salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of church membership. It's not a matter of being involved in ritual. It's not a matter of any other human factor. It is simply a matter of trusting, relying exclusively upon Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today that as we reflect upon them, the Holy Spirit would make them real to us and their application important to us and their application clear to us as we continue to advance towards spiritual adulthood and spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.